cry, holy is the Lord. All right, guys, we started singing this last week. We're going to do it again together. As y'all catch on, we invite y'all to join us. Fires of glory fill this place. 
for being the God of all, the God of everything. He's over it all, our worries and our fears. We hear about a specific moment in the Bible, three different times, where Jesus calms the storm by saying, be still. God is still calming the storms of today, even our individual storms. This next song, we're going to sing it directly to Jesus. We sing it this way because he is the one that makes darkness tremble. He's the one that silences fears, our fears. So as we move into the song, let's not just look at it as another moment of worship. Let's look at it as a moment of prayer. A moment of prayer over anything that has caused you to worry or fear. Let's lift our voices and pray this together. Jesus, 
Jesus
the name of Jesus cannot be overcome. We're here to lift his name and worship him. Please go ahead and have a seat and welcome to PCC. I'm Rick Bolton and I wanna help you get connected with God, with our church, with people around you, with your community. You can help me in doing that by submitting a connect card. Scan the QR code on a seat near you or you can visit our information center out in the atrium when the service is over for more information. And I'm Mark Tapscott. I'm the online pastor, and I'm glad to be here this morning. Hey, online, glad you guys are watching. Rick, I hear there's something really exciting and cool happening next week. There is. We're right having, here. Right, right here, we're having a baptism right here next Sunday at 1 p.m. at the Powhatan campus. <laughs> That's amazing. And, you know, baptism services are one of my favorite things to attend because watching people take that important step in their faith journey by going forward with their faith and being public with it and uh, participating in believer's baptism. That's a huge step, and I get excited every time I see somebody come up out of the water. I celebrate with that, and I invite you to come and be part of that too. Absolutely, and if you think that this may be your next step, we encourage you to, to speak with one of us after the service, go on the website, or go to the information center to get more information and find out if that is your next step and sign up for baptism next week possibly. But even if you've already been baptized, then I think you should still come and celebrate with us and make plans to join us next Sunday at 1 p.m. It'll supercharge your Sunday experience. So be here next week at 1 o'clock. We're now six months into our two-year beyond initiative. We believe that God has called us to go beyond, beyond our limits, beyond Sunday, and beyond ourselves. And many of you made commitments to go beyond with us, and wow, in just... The first quarter so far, so much has happened all around us. Rick, what's some of the stuff that's been going on around here? So we're going beyond our limits. Um, you know, the membership has just recently voted to purchase the land that will house our future Aylet campus. Wow. Aylet's getting a campus, y'all. That's awesome. This year, that campus has grown by over 50%. And all of our campuses are reaching more and more people as we go along this year. You know, our Sunday experiences have been impactful and memorable, and we will never stop working on making uh, those services compelling for kids and adults alike. You know, so far this year, we've had the father-daughter dance. We've had a mother Sunday. We had men gathered for food, encouragement, and fun. And notice I said the food part first. Oh, yeah. That's how you get men to come to stuff. It was a men's stuff. meeting, yeah. You have food, right? And the women, they, they had For You. That's a women's conference where they had teaching and a bonus ladies' night out. Did y'all like the ladies' night out? I heard that was a lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, so we had that going on. Our campuses have held holiday events where hundreds of people from around the community have been able to come in and see our property, see our church in new and exciting ways that they otherwise wouldn't have. And our fourth Wednesday services, we've had hundreds of people come and worship at those, and there's more of those to come as we go forward as well. We're going beyond ourselves. So far, we've had three campuses that have completed impact events in which they found ways to make lasting impacts on the community around them. And make sure not to miss next Sunday when we're going to pray for those who this summer are going out as representatives of PCC to do mission work in other areas of the world in the United States to help people. Now to everyone who's already going beyond with us, I wanna say thank you.
but it's not too late to start uh, on that journey with us. You can join us today even, make your first contribution, and you can do it uh, online, and you join us in our Beyond Vision. Uh, if you're here today, you can make your contribution. Uh, click the QR code on the back of your chair. You can uh, use the boxes out in the lobby on your way out. If you're online, just click on the link in the chat. It'll take you right to it. But we want to say thank you for how you're giving, and we get to see the, the benefits of all that's going on with our Beyond Vision. So, uh, Rick, would you pray with us for that? Sure. God, we're so thankful for the gifts and the things that you have blessed us with. And we're so amazed to see what you do with what we bring. From expanding campuses to reaching people here, near, and far. To touching people's lives in a church building that have never been there before. So they just get to grow a little closer to you. For these things, we thank you. We love you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. So we had some volunteers, I believe. Shanoa, you raised your hand. We had one from over here. Some volunteers. Yeah. Come on volunteers. up. Come on up. So we have over here what? Uh, uh, Tanner White. The makings of a puzzle. Tanner White. <laughs> What's the letter, Tanner? Uh, <laughs> so we, the makings of a puzzle, it looks like, here. This is way more complicated than I've yeah, ever seen a puzzle. Tanner has directions for them and everything. All right, well, while they're working on that, let's take a little tally. <laughs> Who likes puzzles? I know they asked this already, but if you kind of fibbed, raise your hand a little higher. Or this is your chance to correct. All right, how many don't like puzzles at all? <laughs> how many will do it if you have nothing else to do in the world? Yeah, a couple. Yeah. There's the honest people. <laughs> That's a long list. You know, there was only a couple of times in my house growing up that I remember we did puzzles. When the electricity went out, mom always broke out a puzzle and we had puzzles to do. When we went on family vacation, we go to Myrtle Beach every summer and they put up a card table and put a puzzle out and all week long we'd stop by and do a couple of pieces. By the end of the week we had all the puzzle completed. But I was, it wasn't really my thing, but I would always enjoy it. I'd pick out all the little straight pieces and start with the square edge, you know, and, and do all that. Is that Who what starts with corner pieces? Yeah. Corners Corners start with the corner. Who right. starts in the middle? Because y'all yeah. are just absolutely crazy. Nobody does that, right? N nobody will admit it anyway. Because <laughs> we were going to ask you some some follow-up questions. Let's see how things are going over Let's here. See. I see a word forming up top yeah. there. That looks like an... I can't tell if it's all. the camera. All. The word or? all is available. There's something there in the middle. In the middle? Yeah, I can't tell what that is yet. Okay. You know, hey. one of my memories of puzzles, I, I, I had patience. I would do them. But there was one particularly hard one I just got fed up with. And I said, these pieces are going to fit. <laughs> and I, I got the edges done, and then I just started jamming pieces. And That's it, why they make scissors, Rick. You make them fit. You well, just cut I, around I'm there. pretty sure I created like a Jackson Pollock or a uh, Picasso. I don't know. It's, That's nice. It was horrible. Uh, you know, puzzles got started in 1760-something. A guy put a puzzle of a map of the United States on a piece of wood and cut out the states, and that's how the first puzzle got made. And there weren't as many states? Well, I don't know. Is that older? I guess 1760. Yeah, wasn't that many, was it? I didn't know about that. That looks like... Is that is that your old radio there in the middle? My old radio? It's an AM radio, so that... Uh, you may have to explain. AM radio, see, was this thing that came out way before, you know, FM radio. Hang on, let me that? stop you. A radio is kind of like something, yeah, that was Spotify with commercials, and you had to listen to whatever they played, okay. yeah. So. Uh, okay, yeah, it looks like a radio. Yep. We're getting there. You know the world's largest puzzle? 
What's the world's largest puzzle? 6,012 pieces. And it was also a map of the ancient world. 6,000 pieces. You know, for somebody who doesn't like puzzles, you know a lot about puzzles. And this was about 30 pieces, so based on the rate of time it's taking them, it would take you about 16 years this to complete was a, a 6,000 This was a two to four year. <laughs> the box said two to four years, so we're going to be here a while. Hey, hey, Tanner, are there numbers on the back that tell you which piece goes where? No. Uh, it's coming together. Help. Just a couple to go. We're getting there. Let's give them some applause. Let's cheer them on as they finish yeah. it. Yeah. All right, Shinora's tearing a piece in half. That's good. That, that's why we have tape. That is a radio. Look at that. That's All right. Yeah. Always, always sing. All right. See, I told you that was your old radio. Right. So what we have here is not just a picture of an old radio. This is the album cover for the brand new Passion Community album that drops this, this week. week. Yes. All on right. Tuesday, you will be able to listen to it wherever you get your music from. Probably not AM. Probably not but AM. You'll be able to get your get it from wherever you. you but you know, to, to do music. something like this, it takes a lot of teamwork, and they had to work together to do this. And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit more today as we wrap up our swag series. Y'all stick around. So I want you to think about something that happens in history, something that has been an accomplishment or an achievement that has really made a difference in the world. Now, you know, I like studying history, so some of these uh, are interesting to me, maybe not so much to you. I think about uh, Roosevelt, who sent three million troops in 1941 to defeat Adolf Hitler, and then in, on May the 8th, 1945, victory was declared. They succeeded. Kennedy challenged America to go to the moon. And eight years later, after he was assassinated, we gracefully descended the ladder and left a lasting footprint. In the late 1800s, a person who became known as Madame Marie Curie, she worked to scrape enough money together to go to college and then she graduated first in her class with a degree in physics, mind you. And then she turned all of her attention to studying radioactivity, a term that she coined, she invented. And, and it led to the invention of the x-ray machine, which she also invented. And she then equipped emergency medical teams with this vital piece of life-saving uh, equipment. She won Nobel prizes and other awards. And in case you don't know, her passion for this research also gave her cancer for overexposure to the radiation that she employed to save other people's lives. More recently, let's think about something more modern. Just about 20 years ago, a high school senior from Ohio was the first overall pick in the NBA draft, and 12 months later, LeBron James was named Rookie of the Year. And that was just the first of many professional awards he would win, including four NBA championships, the all-time leading scorer in NBA history, and the first player to gain more than a billion dollars in earnings. Well, if you think about that, whatever comes to your mind in terms of a great achievement, any 
uh, any achievement, any of the ones that I've named, a victory in Europe or the moon landing or modern medical radiology or the Lakers' success, any of those things, on the surface, they could be traced to a name. One bold, dedicated, talented, skilled visionary who became famous because of the accomplishment that surrounded that person, that individual. But that, the achievement that they're credited for, it never happened only because of that name or that person, talented or smart or charismatic as they may have actually been. The, the truth is that great world-altering accomplishments are more like the formation of a puzzle where every part has a part to play, something that is put together by a great team. When the team functions as one, the result is a feat that's unattainable by any one person, including the assembly of a great album or great music or historical achievements or anything else. So you don't have to be a religious person really to see that that humanity was really designed to work together. You'd be hard pressed to find or think of anything that has had a lasting impact on our world or made people better that didn't ultimately involve more than one single person in order to make it happen. The idea might begin, the catalyst might start with one person, but the team always makes the idea better and then is able to execute that idea to scale. Nowhere is what we're talking about right now more important than in the movement that Jesus founded, this thing we call the church. And we actually get something for it. We get a gift for accomplishing what God calls us to accomplish and it's called unity. The gift is unity. And the implications of unity are profound. They're far more than we realize. It's not just a concept. It tangibly affects our lives. Because here's the truth. Everybody, you might never say this, you might not even ever think it, but everybody really does want to be a part of something great. We all want to be a part of something lasting and significant and frankly, something that will be left behind when we're gone. Something that makes the world a better place because we got to make a contribution to it. Now, you might not be a church person, but there is nothing more powerful and effective at practically helping to change people's lives than the church when, this is the key part, when the church is working right. And it'll never really work right without you. Paul actually says as much in the chapter we're looking at today in Ephesians chapter four, he begins it like this. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. As a prisoner for the Lord, there's a little bit of a play on words, I'll tell you about that in a minute. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Paul is actually writing from prison, literally. Ephesians is one of four what we call prison letters that the Apostle Paul composes while he is in prison. He's been incarcerated because of his passion for Jesus, something that can still happen to you, uh, prison or worse, in certain parts of our world today. Paul's story, in case you don't know, and I won't belabor this because I know some of us do know, but just to make sure we're all on the same page, Paul's story is one of great contrast because he, he used to be a persecutor of followers of Jesus. I mean, like literally, he was the overseer of their execution. He separated families. He put people in jail. 
He sort of spewed his disdain for anything that had anything remotely to do with Jesus and the church he founded. So I don't know if anybody comes to mind, please don't say it out loud, but if you've ever known anyone who really hated the church and really had contempt for people who were a part of the church, Paul was worse than whoever came to your mind. I've known some people like that, by the way. Paul was worse because he had the power to tear the church apart, to tear the lives of the people in the church apart, and he used that power until, until one day he had an encounter with Jesus, who he knew for sure was dead. He probably was there at the crucifixion. Most scholars think he was, but now he saw Jesus alive, resurrected, raised from the dead. You can read about that story in Acts chapter nine. It's not hard to understand. Uh, I would encourage you to do that. His story, Paul's story, becomes one of the most consequential turnarounds in all of human history. One that is mostly contained and only taught about in the church, but it really is dramatic for all of humanity. This guy used to imprison others, but now he is imprisoned himself because he fell in love with the Jesus that he used to hate. And so writing from prison, he says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Urge. What a curious word. When I read the Bible, uh, this part of the Bible was written in ancient Greek, not modern Greek, which is a different language. Ancient Greek is a dead language. And so we, they have to work hard to interpret it and translate it into modern English. And so there are different English translations. And I usually read out of the NIV, this, that's this one, the New International Version, but there are some other translations. And sometimes I put those side by side just to see how other translators interpret it. And others, the word urge that the NIV uses, I urge you, others say, I beg you, or, or I implore you. One who apparently really enjoys, you know, sort of King James English says, I beseech you. Try that at home sometime. I beseech you. Urge is a desperate word. It's a desperate word, and it implies that something's got to change. If, if your boss says to you, I urge you to be on time, she's saying, if you're late again, there will be consequences. If your teacher says to the student, I urge you to study harder for your next test, he's saying your final grade is in jeopardy here. If a cop urges you to slow down, they're warning you that you're in danger, you or other people around you, or at least your driving record if you do not slow down. Urge is a plea for change. And I think the implication here underneath of this is is a bit of a reprimand, if you wanna know the truth. I can hear my mama's voice saying something like, boy, you better get yourself together. You better get yourself together. When, when mama said that, she had a way about her. Don't all of our mamas, our parents kinda of have a, mama had a way, when she said that, like every, her inflection changed, the look on her face changed, she had like a twitch in her eye, she was always holding a fly swatter, no flies in the vicinity. If you don't know what I mean, just email me, I'll tell you. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. This is the clue that Paul is talking to followers of Jesus. He's talking to the church, not just that church, but because the Bible is the Bible, he's talking to this church, our church. So let me reiterate that there are people in our church right now, today, some of you are still checking out Jesus. You're curious about God, 
but you are frankly, if you're being honest, unsure about what you believe. And I urge you to keep searching because God is not trying to hide from you. We created this place just for you so that you could ask your questions and seek to know God at your pace. No question is a bad question. Nobody gets in trouble for asking your questions about God. It's okay. You are not an outsider here. You belong here. And when you become a follower of Jesus, and I say it like that because I believe Jesus is so compelling that if you keep asking those questions, he'll become irresistible to you. So when you become a follower of Jesus, Jesus then calls us all, all followers of Jesus, to a different kind of life, one that is, frankly, contrary to the world that we live in today. How is it contrary? Paul goes on to tell us, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. What does that mean? Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. As followers of Jesus, how do we live a life worthy of our calling? We behave differently. We have a different perspective. We change the way that we see ourselves. We change the way that we treat people around us. So don't say anything out loud. Don't raise your hand. Don't nod your head. For the love of God, don't elbow the person next to you. Would you describe yourself as humble? How about gentle? Would people around you say that you are someone who bears with each other, with other people in a spirit of love? Did you know that humility was not considered a good thing until the early church, until Jesus, really? Prior to the movement that Jesus founded, humility was tied to weakness. It was even linked in a very negative way to prostitution, the word humility, the concept of it. So to be humble before Jesus, before Jesus came, to be humble was to allow yourself to be used and abused in the worst kind of way, is weakness. It was the movement that Jesus founded that completely redefined for the first time in Greek culture what humility really meant and to turn it into something good. Here's what humility means. It's putting yourself, for all the definition, whatever you think humility means, set that aside for a second. Humility means putting yourself alongside the image of God and recognizing that there is no comparison, that you, you fall absolutely short. Humility is saying, I am capable of doing bad things. I'm capable of doing wrong things. I often say to people, not at all rhetorically, often say, I wish I could tell you that I always do the right thing because it's the right thing. Sometimes I do the right thing because getting caught is a price too high. And if that sounds unflattering, it is. Also happens to be true. So humility is the awareness, the willingness to just admit, man, I'm broken. Everybody's broken. And were it not for Jesus, who calls me to a better life, my life would be without hope. And I mean that not figuratively. I mean it absolutely literally. I am not looking to be great. I am looking for Jesus to be great. 
Let me say it another way. I know I'm not great, but I know Jesus is. And any greatness in me is not because of me. It is because of him. That is humility. So for the puzzle of the church to be right and complete, humility has to be front and center. Where we look at the church and we say, we're all kind of a broken mess. No part is any greater. Jesus, who calls us though, he is. And when you give your life to Jesus, it is necessary. The only way you can really give your life to Jesus is out of a spirit of humility. Because humility recognizes my overwhelming shortcomings, my absolute depravity compared to the goodness and the purity and the holiness of God. Do you see? You and I like to compare ourselves to each other. So we say, well, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. But humility says, I'm really messed up if, I com if the comparison is between me and God. Only through humility can I actually receive the gift that God has for me. Only through humility can the church achieve its calling. So Paul has some other qualities he lists. I think humility is at the top of the list on purpose. But he also says, what about gentleness? Be completely humble and gentle. Do you know the word he uses here? I found this super interesting. Uh, if humility is how I approach myself, gentleness is how I approach other people. And the word that he uses for gentleness is the same exact word to describe an animal that has been fully trained and acts according to the will of its owner. It's completely obedient. Translation, you and I are called by God, listen to this, to treat each other the way that God wants not always the way that you and I want. Can I just vent for a second? One of my great frustrations today is that it just seems like the whole world is fighting. We just love to hate each other. And it's easy to blame the politicians, but really, truth be told, all we have to do is open up some social media and see our lack of gentleness is not limited to the local board of supervisors or school board or the state capital or the nation's capital. Because one might argue that division is a part of democracy. And that might be true, I don't know. But it was never supposed to be a part of the church. And yet hatefulness happens even among people who claim our common identity as people of God. Followers of Jesus, saved by his grace, charged with his power, given his mission. How is it possible that people who claim a common devotion to Jesus can be so vicious in our treatment of each other? I guess it was also true in Paul's day because he goes on to say, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And then he goes on to talk about what unity is. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Unity is our prize. Unity is what we get when we live a life, going back to Paul's original words, that is worthy of the calling we have received. When we approach ourselves with humility and then we approach everybody else with gentleness and patience and love, when we recognize that our differences of political opinion are secondary by far to our unity in Jesus. 
then and only then will the church actually be attractive to a world who now looks at the church with skepticism, and why wouldn't they? Seriously, when church people hate each other and demonize each other and publicly ridicule each other, why would anyone ever want to be a part of that? So Paul argues in his letter that the church should have no division as a part of it. It should not be divided. Disagreement maybe, but not division. And there is a difference. Rick Warren says, you can have unity without uniformity. We're not looking to all think exactly the same, but we're united. So, so Paul says, stay focused. The focus of the collective of followers of Jesus should always and only be Jesus. And that's why Paul goes out of his way to say, look, there is one body, one body, one spirit. You were called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. One is the key. Once we have unity in Jesus, once we function like one body, one unit, one united force for the purpose of changing the whole world, well, then we get the best part. Finally, we get the prize. So Christ himself, he says, gave the apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. I want you to take all of this and lump it and call it the leadership. Church leadership, all of this, church leadership. Christ gave himself, uh, Christ himself gave church leadership to, for the purpose of, to equip his people, that's everybody, the church, for works of service, works of ministry, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach what? Unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Once we establish our unity in Jesus, we can find our purpose for Jesus. And that purpose is what Paul calls, calls the building up of the body, which is to say, reaching more people with the best news ever. That God loves them, that God wants them, that God has a purpose for them, that God has a place for them in his family. And we can't get there if we don't reach unity in the faith. But when we do, when we get that, well, then we find our stride. And that's where the magic happens. We work together to accomplish something we could never do, none of us could ever do on our own. I'm reading this book uh, called Boys in the Boat. And it's about the night, I told you I like history. I know that's not everybody's cup of tea, but this book is about the 1936 University of Washington crew team this ragtag group of misfits that should never have been able to compete at any level, but they went on to win the gold medal in the 1936 Berlin Olympics. And nobody ever imagined that this crew from Washington of all places could ever really be competitive. And yet, this, this group, this ragtag group of kids that were raised on farms and in logging towns and near shipyards, they blew away their prestigious competition from California and New England, the teams that should have won. How'd they do it? Unity. Even amidst, maybe because of their diversity. I want to read a, just a small piece of the, what the author says, Daniel James Brown uh, I'm reading it digitally, so forgive me for having printed this piece, but I wanna read you this piece about his interpretation of how these eight individuals who are very different, they have varying statures and physiques and personalities, how they were able to capitalize 
on their diversity. This is what he says. Races are won by crews, and great crews are carefully balanced blends of both physical abilities and personality types. A crew composed entirely of eight amped up overly aggressive oarsmen will often degenerate into a dysfunctional brawl in the boat or exhaust itself in the first leg of a long race. Similarly, a boatload of quiet but strong introverts may never find the common core of fiery resolve that causes the boat to explode past its competitors when all seems lost. Good crews are good blends of personalities. Someone to lead the charge, someone to hold something in reserve, someone to pick a fight, someone to make peace, someone to think things through, someone to charge ahead without thinking. Somehow all this must mesh. That's the steepest challenge. Even after the right mixture is found, each man or woman in the boat must recognize his or her place in the fabric of the crew, accept it, and accept others as they are. It is an exquisite thing when it all comes together in just the right way. Unity is the key. It's how it all comes together in just the right way. This works on a crew. It works in your home. It works on a team. And it especially works in the church. So Paul has been building. He's been building. We're in chapter four now. Out of six chapters, we got two more to go. And he first establishes that we were chosen. God picked you. If you weren't here, you should go back and watch that message. And then Paul declares that, that God gave you life. It wasn't really your mama and your daddy, though they had a part to play. Life, God wants to give you the life at its essence, the best kind of life. That's the gift of God, a gift you have to receive. And once you do that, God's power becomes evident in you. We looked at that last week. We talked about all three of these things, all three of these gifts, the swag, if you will. You were chosen, God gave you life, God gave you power, and these were mostly things for you. They're mostly about you. But this swag, unity, it has a grander purpose. It necessarily involves other people who were also chosen, who were also given life, who, were also, who also received power from God. And now we come together as one people for one purpose so that we can reach others with the good news, that God also chose them, that God also wants life for them, that God also wants to give his power to them. And so Paul gives us this formula, and it's somewhat the image of a puzzle, that God made some to be pastors and teachers, leaders and so, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. See, if you think about it, there are four ways that we can relate to each other. I won't belabor any of these, but just think about this for a second. And we all know this. This won't be anything you don't know. We could have opposition to each other. We could have opposition. We know what that is, right? It's all fun and games in sports. We're supposed to have opposition in sports. Someone wins, someone loses. That's just the way it works. It's competition. It's a contest to see who's better, who's stronger, who's more skilled, who's more talented, who's smarter. And opposition has its place, right? 
but not if you're on the same team. If you're fighting each other on the same team, if you're opposed to each other, the team never wins like that. Not at home, not in your marriage, not in an organization that's trying to go somewhere, and definitely not in the movement of the church. Paul knows this, which is why he says to the Ephesians, I'm paraphrasing now, straighten up. Live a life worthy of your collective calling. Find unity together. So we all know about opposition, but the second place that we don't think about a lot is neutrality. I mean, everybody knows you can't be opponents and be on the same team. It's not sustainable, it's hurtful, we know that. But just because you're not against each other doesn't mean you're actually for each other either, right? You might not be in opposition, you might just have a posture of neutrality. And neutrality says, hey, you do your thing, I'll do my thing. If we're being really honest, neutrality says, yeah, I don't really care what you do as long as you don't mess with what I do. It's not the active working against each other that opposition is, but it's completely siloed. And here's the truth. When you're in a posture of neutrality, you might as well not be on the same team because for all practical purposes, you aren't. Neutrality is not a winning strategy for accomplishing anything great. And if I could be so bold, and what I'm about to say is not a political statement because I think people on both sides of the aisle would say this, I think this is why government, generally speaking, is so dysfunctional. The right hand doesn't know, and worse, doesn't really care what the left hand is doing. You stay out of my way, I'll stay out of your way. That's the motto. Nothing great is ever achieved with neutrality. So then we get to the third thing, and that's collaboration. And collaboration isn't bad. Uh, collaboration is sort of the exchange of ideas. It's the working together towards something and it is limited in scope and it's mutually beneficial. That's why it's collaboration. It's limited in scope and it's mutually beneficial. And you can get some stuff done with collaboration, but it's very much, here's the problem with it. It's very much a you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours kind of thing. So we're doing this together, but uh, who's gonna get credit for it when we win? Both of us? Oh, well, whose name's gonna appear first? And you know, who's gonna, how are we gonna divide up the earnings? Because I did more. And the other person says, well, yeah, but I brought the idea. I mean, collaboration has some benefits, but it's fragile. The pinnacle of achievement only comes through unity. Unity is how wars are won. Unity is how life-altering breakthroughs are found. Unity is how marriages achieve greatness. Unity is how friendships thrive. And unity is how the church changes the world. Unity around what? around Jesus Christ alone. Not our individual and sometimes flawed interpretations of the Bible, which apply to me too, by the way. Not our voting preferences or our political bents, not our styles or our personalities or our musical selections. Unity comes through diversity, not in its absence. And unity is a great gift, a gift God wants to give us if we would only receive it. A unity found completely and totally in our collective, unashamed belief that Jesus Christ is the one true God. And our unity in him is all we need together for the cause of the one that we follow. We're gonna spend some time together in the spirit of singing to God. We know he's 
done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but operate out of opposition or neutrality or collaboration but out of unity see we're united in Jesus and that makes a difference in our lives our church our community and ultimately the world so let's stay united all week long not just in this hour right here today let's show our divisive world what it looks like to be united in one faith under one true God thank you for being here today We'll see you here next week for another edition of Swag.